Let us be turning to Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to open us up just in prayer over the scripture tonight, and that God would lead us by His Holy Spirit uh, through His Word. Hmm? Yeah, let's remember Brother Kip, Miss Donna as well, all the sick that we've got in church. Um, Let us not forget them. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. Um, Again, we are honored to be here. Lord, I pray as we come into your house that we would always come uh, with hearts uh, ready to be used by you. And and Lord, that we we would be the kind of people who... Uh, would use the gifts that you've given us in this life, whether it be encouraging or whether it be uh, gentleness, whether it be kindness, whether it be kind words or whatever it may be, that as we gather together as a body of believers, that you would uh, make clear to us the gifts that you've given to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would empower us and encourage us to use those gifts so that we might encourage one another in the time that we come in here, that we might uh, maximize this time, Lord. Um, though sometimes I'm sure many would think that, that I preach way too long, um, in reality, the time that we spend together, Lord, is so short compared to the time that we are out in this world. And I just pray that, that as I preach tonight and, and every time that I preach, that, that the efforts that have gone in before this, um, that you and your Holy Spirit would move. Uh, so that your truth could be preached and proclaimed, proclaimed unhindered, so that your people might be encouraged by it, might be um, refined and sanctified by it, that we might be a, a church body that would be about spreading your fame and your glory to the uttermost places of this world, Lord. Um, I ask now that your Holy Spirit would just move in the service tonight, move in our hearts as we press on through this book of Romans. I pray that you would continue to remind us of the gospel that's been laid down behind us in Scripture and that you would see, uh, that you would lead us on now into the, the security of this hope that we find in you and you alone and your promises that cannot, will not fail and that as we press deeper on into this book and we see uh, how these truths play out practically in our lives ultimately to the spreading of the gospel to the places that it has never gone before that you would uh, lead us there by your holy spirit and guide us and make ready the ground now uh, and send us or send us where you would have us whether it is into our workplaces tomorrow or whether it's into the farthest places of the world that we thought we might never go. Uh, For your name, for your glory, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so we're going to be in the book of Romans tonight, chapter 10. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. Um, This may be, if not tonight, then probably, most certainly next week, this may be the last time that we start and kind of do the overview of chapter 9 up to this point. It's just, as, as we press on through more and more scripture, it's going to get harder and harder to go back and refresh ourselves on everything. And I believe either tonight or next week is going to be a good place to kind of say, okay, we're going to not rewind and, and try to cover the whole idea, but we're just going to kind of move on uh, through the text. So, uh, for tonight, we are going to pick back up. I'm just kind of trying as, as briefly as, as I can, and I do, y'all know, y'all know, I have a hard time with brief anything, but um, as briefly as I can, I'm going to move through chapter 9, leading us up to where we start, where we left off in chapter 10, verse 4 last week, and then we're going to press on into some new scripture tonight. Good news is, is the sermon is going to be half as long as it would have been otherwise. I was planning on going all the way to uh, verse 17 tonight, but we're going to cut it short early, and we're just going to go to verse 13 of chapter 10 of Romans. So if it is long, it would have been twice as long otherwise. So count your, count your blessings, right? All right, so just to catch us up to where, we, where we're at, what we've been doing so we've got these big promises made in Romans chapter 8, knowing all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And these are huge promises that we should continue reminding ourselves. I don't know if, if we could ever read that truth enough times or, or meditate 
meditate on that thought enough times to know that there is nothing that can stand in our way if God is for us. And that we can be absolutely certain of this because we know, we know that God's Word and God's promises can never fail. And that is what we're dealing with through chapter 9, 10, and 11 is this idea of with these promises that have come through Christ, where then does the people of Israel fit? Where then does all the promises that have been made to them uh, where do those fall in light of what Christ has done? And Paul has been doing this. Uh, kind of the thesis of what we've been doing can be found in verse 6 of chapter 9. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, right? God's Word cannot fail. So Paul opens up chapter 9 with by explaining to us the absolute depth from which he is burdened for the lost. And we... Time and time again, as we reflect on this, we should reflect uh, on the truth that God is more burdened from the lost than man could ever be. God loves us more than we could ever love, period. He is love, right? He is love. Uh, from this, Paul goes on to tell us that God cannot fail in His Word. And he shows us what he sees taking place today as something that's taken place in the past. He gives us examples of Isaac. He gives us examples of uh, Jacob showing how God has, through time, selected those to bring about His purposes. Ultimately, the end goal of all of this, God's purpose in election is what? Do y'all remember that when we were talking about that? What is this end goal? Like, what is the big picture, the one thing that you could say about what God's purpose in election is? His glory in the exaltation of Christ. Ultimately, His glory in the exaltation of Christ. Big picture view of what God's doing here. So the early part of chapter 9, we see very much a view of what God's doing, right? Paul wants to cement us in. And I think in our lives, one thing that we need to wrap our brain around first before we try to figure out our role in things is we need to first cement ourselves in the truth of that God has purposes and plans. And this is what Paul does as he starts this off. And the whole opening of this is, is God's promises and what God's doing. Right? And so quickly we are to want to ask about the us or the we or the how do I fit in. Like he's telling us first and foremost and what's happened is God's plan and God's plan cannot fail. Look at how he's been doing it all along. And God, God uses Paul in chapter nine to point out scripture after scripture, reference after reference to show back to the Old Testament to show us that God's been doing this thing the whole time. God's plan cannot fail. Last week and kind of, uh, the weeks before that we were kind of gearing into this this other end of it where we look at Pharaoh and we see this kind of two things going on, God hardening and also Pharaoh hardening. And we won't, we don't want to divide those things up. We don't want to say God does it here, Pharaoh does it here. What we want to say instead is that both and, right? These are not exclusive things. Not one thing happens and the other thing happens. In the opening of Romans chapter 1, when God abandons, what happens to the heart of men? It hardens. So this is a truth that I don't want us to stray away from. So when God draws back and now 400 years Israel hasn't heard from a prophet, what's going to happen when God pulls back? The hearts of the people will harden. Ultimately, so they fall away forever. Is that the ultimate? Is, is God just cruel like that? Is this ultimately so that they fall away forever? Or, or could it be that God has bigger things in store? This is, this is the truth that we're going to be pressing into over the coming weeks as we see where does Israel fall into this? Last week what we see is that they just don't believe. Right? Their role in this is that they don't believe. If I present the gospel to someone, do you know the reason that I don't present election or predestination first? Because if you go to hell after hearing the gospel, it is because you did not believe. You did not believe. You did not believe. And Israel's falling away. Plan of God all along. And they did not believe. 
And this, for us, turned into the greatest of blessings. Because of their unbelief, the gospel was made available. Because they nailed him to a cross, the gospel is available. Because they rejected it as it was preached to them, God sends Paul out to the Gentiles. And we are here today because God's plan cannot fail. And at the exact same time, Israel did not believe. Verse 4 of chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. And how does that end? Who believes? I'm going to read that again. Y'all go ahead and get there because we're going to be starting into the new stuff. Now, chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? Everyone who believes. What of those who don't believe? Unrighteous? What of their end? Death and hell. What of those who never hear? Death and hell. Do you see the the two distinctions that I made there? Do you see the distinction of you've heard the gospel and you did not believe the gospel? You never heard the gospel. Why do both end in the same? Because the reason that you go to hell is not just that you rejected Christ. The reason that you go to hell is because you are a sinner from birth. In need of a Savior. So whether you never hear the Gospel, you are a sinner. And if you hear the Gospel and reject it, still you remain in sin. What is the only hope for those who are perishing? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I want, I want to spend some time in this. Tonight we're actually going to step away a little bit at least from some of the wording, some of the language that leads us so quickly into thinking about predestination. The next two sermons actually we're going to kind of step away. And, and, and that's, that's intentional because what we're going to find in the Scripture is that Paul starts preaching in the midst of this, this deep truth that we get. We see this blending into preaching, which then comes back. We're not done with the election predestination talk yet. But what I want us to see is that as we dig into this, as Paul himself is rolling out this truth, what we find is God's plan, people unbelieving, the need for the preaching of the gospel. How does Paul himself address this? As he now in in chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. And this is when I bring those two issues up, when I, when I bring either you reject the gospel or you never heard the gospel, you think that is so unfair that someone who never heard the gospel would go to hell. How many of us, honestly, we hear that and that we're like, that seems, that seems somewhat harsh. Should he not give them a pass? Are they less sinners? Are they less sinners? Because they didn't hear the gospel? Are they less sinners because of that? And, and I want to tell you that, that, that some of the root, some of the seed of what it seems to us so oftentimes so unfair is because in the same way that Israel lacked in understanding and knowledge of who God was and the righteousness of God, we too oftentimes fail to fathom, fail to understand how righteous God is. Right? We 
fail to understand this. Why? This is why when we come here, we come now to this. Paul, and, and as I see this, I want to, I want to, I want to go ahead and point out, I want to point a couple of things out to you that as I personally am studying this, I, I, I look at it and I think, that's just uncanny. This is just, this is just an uncanny kind of thing. So in verse 4 of chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? So I want us to get this. He says Christ is the end of the law. Does he mean that the law now has no place? No, we covered last week, and we've covered in times past, that what we find, in fact, is that, that when Christ comes on the scene, the law finds its proper place, right? Now that we have the cross, we see the purpose of the law as a guide to lead us to the need for the cross. Paul here using this word, Christ is the end of the law, Meaning that what the law and, and Moses and, and all of these people following after Moses, what they're trying to do in following the law is what? Be righteous. Be righteous. The end of the law is what? In all practical terms, the end of the law is what? If you could do it, what would you be? The problem is you can't. So the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. This is who Christ is. Now Paul. So here's the, here's the, place where, to me, it's just really uncanny. Alright? So, Paul here, using this particular wording to reference Christ and who Christ is, now will go on to quote Moses, and do you know where he quotes him from? The end of the law. Right? So, we're going we're gonna to go and look in Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at this particular quotation that Paul is going to bring up, and he's going to mold it just a little bit. Right? He's going to mold this quotation that he brings over from Deuteronomy, a quotation from Moses, a quotation from the end of the law. Right? And he's going to mold it, and he's going to insert Christ in there. So that we get this clear picture of who Christ is, and in this, the uncanny thing that I see in this, as I see Paul using this wording, the end of the law for righteousness, and then, you know, just so happens to go and actually quote from the end of the law to make and bring this point home, as he's now rolling in deeper and deeper into preaching and the need for preaching, which is what we're going to cover next week, as he gets into this idea of preaching, he opens it up and rolls into it by doing what? By preaching righteousness through who? Through Christ, through God. Yes, thank you, Izzy. Izzy, y'all should be ashamed. <laughs> or Dustin should be all kinds of proud. <laughs> Alright, so y'all flip with me now to Deuteronomy. Now here's one thing that I would tell you. So we're going to do a little bit of context as to where we're at in the big picture of Deuteronomy. We're not going to cover the first 29 chapters um, leading up to chapter 30, but we're going to be in chapter 30. The specific quotation that we're going to be looking at is going to be drawing from chapter 30, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. But kind of get an idea as to where we're at in this. And if you were to flip over a couple of more chapters, do you know what you're going to find? Moses is dead, and Joshua's taking over. Right? Joshua's leading people where? To the promised land. And I know Dustin's done some type stuff. Have you done Joshua yet? I can't remember if you've done Joshua in the service yet. A little little bit of this. So, so y'all know what an Old Testament type is or an Old Testament shadow is? This is something in the Old Testament that points towards Christ. Right? So Moses, at times in his life, we can see definite types or definite foreshadowings of Christ. Joshua clearly is that. Moses, if you look at Moses' life and Moses doesn't make it into the promised land, Moses doesn't lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Who leads the people of Israel into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua is a type of who? He's a type pointing forward to Christ. Who's going to lead us into the promised land? Christ is going to lead us. Are y'all following me here? What we're kind of working through here. So Moses, in that particular type, in that particular analogy, Moses does what? He gives the law. The law can't lead you in. It can lead you up to the border of. But it's going to be Christ who leads you in. So here we are in the last book of Moses, the last book that he writes. 
and we're in the last of the law. This is where we're sitting. At this point, so what's taking place in the book of Deuteronomy is likely taking place over a a very short period of time, probably a month, maybe just shy of a month. What's going on and where we're going to find ourselves dropping in in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy is at the end of the last sermon that he's going to be giving. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving three sermons, right? The last sermon of which starts in chapter 29 ends at the end of chapter 30. And then we find some handing off to Joshua. We find some songs being sung that prophesy to the people of Israel in the singing of the songs that you're not going to make it, you're not going to do this thing, and I'm going to have to rescue you. And this song is a reminder that you can't do it yourself. And what do they do? They forget that they can't do it themselves. So Paul quotes time and time and time again from this book to his brothers preaching to them who have hardened their hearts... To repent. So we find ourselves in Deuteronomy, in the middle of a sermon that is preaching repentance. Okay? So this is repentance. This is, I've laid out the law for you. Here's what the law says. You're going to fail. You're going to fall short when you do return to God. When you do return to God. So this is the third sermon that he's preached. This final sermon is a sermon of repentance. Moses is preaching to them a sermon of repentance here. I'm going to just quote a couple of things uh, from around this. Verse 4 of chapter 29. These are just highlights that I've made as I've gone through it. Uh, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. We go over into chapter 30. We look at verse 2. Um, and I would ask you to read all of 29, all of 30 to get this full sermon. You're probably going to have to read it a couple of times to kind of grasp all the stuff that's going on here. Promises are being laid out. Curses are being laid out. Um, the idea of repenting and turning to God comes on strong in chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 2, I'm just going to read the first half of it, or the first kind of portion of it there, and return to the Lord your God. Verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. What is this What is this language speaking of? What kind of language is this? Circumcision of the heart. This sounds a lot like New Testament language, right? It's interesting enough if you didn't know that much New Testament language is quoting Old Testament language, right? Much of it is. Right? So this is the language of repentance. And this, who, who circumcises their own heart? Right? We can circumcise men all day long. Not a single person circumcises the heart. Not a single person. Who does this? What language is this? This is language of God doing something here. God changing desires. This idea of God working. Alright? The end of chapter 30 verse 10 says, When you turn, to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we kind of get in this a, a command of kind of when you're in that place, turn and, and then a promise as well in this. So when you do, when you turn, all right? And then he goes into the verses that we're going to go back in a little bit into Romans and see that Paul quotes. So I want to read it verbatim from the end of the law, right? from the end of the law, so that we can go back and reflect on how Paul kind of reshapes this to show how Christ is the end of the law and what that means for us. So verse 11, chapter 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, I will ascend to heaven, uh, or who will ascend to heaven for us to bring... uh, for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So this is a call to repentance If you were to flip on to the next chapters, so it seems as though here Moses is saying you can do it. You can do it, right? 
It seems as we read this, and what I would say to you is that this is an allusion to some New Testament truths. Right? This is placed by the Holy Spirit at the hand of Moses so that it could be used by the Holy Spirit at the hand of Paul. Like this is some supernatural placement of scripture because if you were to flip on just a couple of pages later, God tells them, Moses tells them, you can't do it. You're gonna fail. You're gonna get carried away. You're gonna worship other gods. Like this is where it's gonna end. But all along the way, leaving in these drops of hope. That they could cling to, right? And this is the text that we're going to flip back now and see Paul using and rewording just slightly to make clear the truth that we left off with last week in chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. To who? Y'all need to finish that up. Right, We're not universalists. We don't believe everybody get to heaven. Who gets to heaven? Everyone who believes. There we go. There we go. So it's everyone who believes. Let's, let's finish that up, right? Let's be sure to finish that up. Alright, so verse 5 of chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on... A righteousness based on faith says, and here's where the quotations are going to start coming from the passage of text that we looked at uh, in Deuteronomy there. So uh, verse 6, let's kind of just rewind a bit and, and see that he's talking about a righteousness based on faith, based on belief, based on not the efforts of man. And this is how we're going to see this in the and how he kind of rewords and, and, and re uh, kind of re bring or brings this this text back at us um, that this is not the working of man uh, but this is faith from us to what God has uh, what God has done in Christ so verse 6 but the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven that is to bring Christ down so this is the first place there so Moses was using it for what in Moses' reference there, what was he referencing? As, as, as Moses is pinning it, if we're in the head of Moses and he's pinning this, what do you think he's referencing? You don't have to go to do what? To get the law. Like he's just pinned this joker out a second time for them, right? Deuteronomy. It's the second time, okay? So we're getting this written down by Moses and he's thinking about what? Y'all don't have to worry about somebody going up to get this. You got the law right here. You don't have to worry about who's going to be the great prophet that brings you the word. It's here. Paul now using this. So what would then the Israelites go on to do with the law? They would go on to abuse it. They would go on to failed to keep it, they would go on and on and on, not seeing that the law was meant to point them to the hope that had been promised to them, but to think that the law in itself was the end by which they would reach that righteousness. And Paul here, using this idea, rewording it, saying, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, not to get the law, right? He's quoting here Old Testament Scripture, but he wants to say to them, the idea that you're not thinking here is that you have to go and get now a Messiah, right? You don't have to go to get Christ. That is to bring Christ down. Right? Now here's the, here's what I want us to get. Here's what I want us to get here. As Moses is using these analogies in the Old Testament of having to go and bring these things down, why was he doing that? Why was he using those things? Because they were difficult things. Alright? How many of you are gonna ascend to heaven? Not, not a single hand goes up. Alright, Izzy, you're not going back. <laughs> you missed one. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna ascend right now. Okay, we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll put a little asterisk on that later. Alright, so who's going? Who's going to bring the Messiah down? God is the only one who could. You just redeemed yourself, sister. Boom. Love it. Love it. <laughs> she is absolutely paying attention. I love it. I love it. Alright, so this is a difficult thing if you had to worry about getting yourself a Messiah. 
But faith doesn't say who's going to go and bring a Messiah. What does it say? What does it say? Let's, let's continue on. So, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss. So, in Moses, in the wording that Moses uses, Moses uses the wording of going across the sea. Again, something extremely difficult, extremely treacherous. No one would want to have to do that. It's dangerous. And Moses is saying, don't worry. you got the law right here. It's in your hearts. It's in your mouth. Right? You don't have to go out. Repentance is near. Right? Turn to God. Turn to His Word. Turn to the hope that you have in Him. Right? The same truth Paul's trying to bring out. And, and this is why, I, this is why I, I love it because he's using for the Jew who would be reading this references they would be absolutely clear on where he's using it. And then he's rewording it just enough. He's adding just enough little parentheses in there to make clear to their hearts that the promise that that was leaving for them was the Messiah that is now here. So in the same way that they were hoping and clinging to the law, in the same way that that hope was close, not something they would have to go and work for, or go and strive after to get. Now he's saying the Messiah is here in this very same way. Not that someone has to go up to heaven and say, look, we need you to come down here. Because if He were not going to come, who could petition Him to come? None. If His desire was not to come, then He would not come. Likewise, He didn't go across the sea, but He went into the abyss. He went into the grave. And if He went into the grave, how much desire on our parts could raise Him from the grave? Not any. So we could not ascend to heaven to bring Him down. We could not go into the depths to raise Him up if His sacrifice was not sufficient for us. But what do we know about the truth of Christ? What do we know about what's taking place in Him? Is that there's nothing else to be done on our parts. There's nothing we must achieve now. The end of the law is found in Christ. It's beautiful to me. Because as we come to this passage of text, as we come to chapter 9, 10, and 11, so oftentimes in our minds as we address this, we think that this makes no room for the gospel. Right? So many people would see the idea of God's providence, God's sovereignty as a thing that says, nope, there's no room for the gospel. The guy that's preaching it to us for the first time here, in the, in the deepest depths that you're going to find it throughout Scripture in one place, this guy in the middle of it is doing what? He's preaching to the hardened hearts. And that gives me chills, man. Like, that gives me chills, especially as a preacher. Like, i got to be straight up honest with you. And I read this, and I see Paul doing this, pulling out no stops. No stops for those whose hearts are hardened. Because some will believe. Some will believe. And he knows this to be true. He knows this to be true without question. So he preaches it in the midst of the, the, the thickest that you're going to find theology. And, and, and I, I can't find another place outside of Scripture that my mind is baffled by as I do in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. I cannot find one that baffles me as much as this. That I wrestle with as hard as I do here. And then in the midst of this, I find him preaching a gospel. And he's starting with the ones that he's already said have been hardened. Do you know the only hope for the hardened heart? The gospel. The only hope for the hearts that are hardened is the preaching of God's word. Is the truth of what Christ has done. How often times we find ourselves silent when it comes to sharing the gospel. The only hope, church, the only 
hope for the hardened hearts that surround us as we go out through the week is the gospel hope. And in this, the truth that he's shoring up here, the truth that he's kind of placing all his bets in on is this truth that God's word never fails. So that when you go out to preach to the hardened hearts, you know it's not in vain. When you go out to share the truth of God's Word, you know without a doubt that that scene we see in Revelation with faces from every tribe, nation, and tongue, that God will succeed in that. So that as you share the Gospel, you know that you are taking part of this great commission, this great calling in which God Himself is doing such a beautiful, beautiful work. The Word, verse 8, but what does it say? So it's not saying that you're going to do some work to bring Christ here, that you're going to do some work to raise the Christ. And and I want you to, I want you to get to just kind of want to mention this briefly, is that Christ is not last name, right? Like like when we say Jesus Christ, like like Christ is not last name. It's not like Landon Key, right? Like when we say Christ, we're not just referring to Him by His last name, right? Like this is a reference to the Messiah. So when they're saying Christ, they're referencing here the Messiah. So it's not that you're going to call the Messiah from heaven or raise the Messiah from the dead. That's not your work. That's not your work. What does faith say? What does a righteousness that's based on faith from verse 6, what does that faith then say? The Word is near in your mouth and in your heart. Again, this is quoting from the passage of text that his Jewish brothers would have known so well. Right? He's quoting again from this. This word is near to you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be safe. I want to read that again. I want to read that again. And as I just want to, as y'all go through y'all's Romans roadmap, I want y'all to pay attention oftentimes where y'all's Roman roadmap goes to first. And I want y'all to see also that the preaching of the gospel has been done already. Right? Like up to chapter 8, gospel preaching. Right there. And now we transition into this passage of text. And this is where we draw this truth from. This is where we draw this truth from here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what? What? And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you might be saved if you're elect. Like, this is such a beautiful passage of text. Such a beautiful passage of text to find here in this Run of Scripture, especially. Let us rest on this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we've got, in these last two verses, we've got two words that are being thrown around in here, this idea of confession and this idea of belief. One says confess, believe. One says believes, confesses. Right? I want us to look at these words a little bit, and I want us to think about what these words mean in relation to this, just to kind of bring out things that we should already know from our study through this book, but just to kind of, this gives a good opportunity for a refresher of sorts here. Verse 10 is the is where we're going to kind of focus in on this. For with the heart one, what? Believes. And what happens when we believe? What happens when we place our faith in Christ? You're... Oftentimes we'll say saved, but he uses a particular word here because he's going to use saved in, in a second. What does he use here? 
He used the word justified. What does it mean to be justified? When you believe in Christ, you're justified. Did Izzy give the right answer? Does anybody else want to answer? What does it mean to be justified? To be made righteous, forgiven, to be given a standing in Christ from which when God looks upon us, He does not see sinner, He sees saint. When you believe, the moment you believe this gospel, you are justified before God. As though you had never sinned. And never would from that moment. You're justified. You're given a position that will never be taken away. So when you believe, before God, you are justified. He doesn't stop there. With And with the mouth, this is the last part of verse 10, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, so here I want to pause and I want to say or ask the question, so you... Believe and you're justified. Must you then do something to be quote unquote saved? Is there something that comes after justification? Continual repentance? Is that giving you salvation? Is justification salvation? Is salvation one specific point or is it something that happened, is happening, continues to happen, and will happen? It's more than just a moment. And this is why throughout Scripture you'll find words like, he could have said saved, saved. And in the way that we use saved here, that would be okay. Because oftentimes we throw the the word around for every single piece of it. But the reason is we were going through the book of Romans, that we use specific language to talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification is so that we could understand the different parts of this and what's taking place in us. Right. So here's what I want us to see is that when you believe you're saved, when you believe you're justified, when you confess, what is confession? And I'm not talking about just like you go into like this box or something and there's a guy sitting over there and you're like, you know, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Like that's not, I'm not talking about that kind of confession. Like what is this idea of confession? It's not, I, I want to I say that, that, that admitting you're a sinner is not a, not an, a, a, a far off answer, okay? Like that's, you could be justified in saying that, but I don't think that that's what he's trying to say here. Right? This confessing with the mouse is confessing who? Christ, clearly. Right? So, belief. And what comes forth from belief? Confession. More generally, fruit. Confession is a fruit of a heart that is changed. So, when you confess Christ before men, what will He do before the Father? What do you do? If we deny Christ before man, salvation in the form of justification, in the form of belief, that first belief, leads naturally to confession. If you have a mouth that works, I want to say it this way. So here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying if your mouth don't work or if you're mute or you can't vocalize the words or whatever, that you can't be saved, right? That's not what this Scripture is saying. But if you have a mouth that works and you fail to use it to confess the name of Christ, you are not saved. In the same way that... A good tree bears good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. You as a believer cannot, cannot live your entire life truly believing and doing nothing. Confession will follow to salvation.
The confession does not save you. But you are being saved even today. Your salvation continues on. The one who started the work in you will want finish the work in you. So I just want to pause here so that we can consider that. Are we, as believers, confessing with our mouths the truth of who Christ is? Are we suppressing it like the lost would suppress it? I want us to be real in that. And I want us to be real in that more than just the, do you say it, but do we live it? Right? Because we might could fool ourselves sometimes when we get around our Christian friends and we can confess it. But then when we are called to do anything by God, not by me, not by anyone else, but by God, and you know when God calls you to things and you fail to do it. Actions come forth from the salvation that we have. Do you all understand that? Do you understand that? And I want you all to understand that this is pivotal. This is pivotal. And if you look at next week's sermon, the scripture that we're going to be covering there, you'll see why it's pivotal. Next week, in the midst of all this, we're going to get to probably one of the most beautiful passages in text calling us to preach God's Word. Calling us to do what with our mouths? Confess who Christ is. In the midst of chapter 9, 10, and 11, we find this. In the midst of it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scriptures say... Get this, man. Get the the quotation after quotation after quotation that he brings up from the Old Testament. The Scriptures say, and what do the Scriptures say? Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on Him for... And here we get another quotation from the book of Joel. 4, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to read it again. I want you to read it with me. If you have your Bibles with you, I want your eyes down in the book. If you don't, you can look up at the screen. Verse 13, for everyone, verse 13, for everyone, would y'all read it with me? Can we do a can we do an out loud scripture reading? Right, do we have for everyone who calls on that? Oh, boom! So perfect. We got the the exact one. Y'all read from the board if you've got a if you've got a different one that doesn't read like this. Um, y'all read it with me. We're gonna do a three, two, one countdown, and we're gonna start at four, and we're gonna see how cool this this goes. All right, three, two, one. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How beautiful a hope is that. And we're going to end just by looking at where we're going next week. So for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how will they call on Him? How will they call on Him? Or, excuse me. How will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for the wonders of Your Word. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, move in our lives. Lord, uh, as we read here, Paul pulling out all the stops, pulling out all the stops and quoting Moses and Moses' sermon of Repentance here and using it to show clearly that 
our hope is found in faith in the work of Christ. As we see him doing all that he can for these brothers whom his heart is so heavily burdened for, whose hearts are hardened against the gospel. Let us be emboldened by this truth that your gospel takes hearts of stone and replaces it with hearts of flesh. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Lord, that you would give us strength as we go out from day to day. Lord, as we go on our different paths in life this week, may they bring us back here that we can encourage one another. But as we go out this week, lead us to those who need the gospel. Open our eyes to the need. Lord, that we would be without excuse. That we could not say, I don't know what to say. That we could not say, I do not have the words. Lord, as we have so tirelessly pressed on through this book, that your Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance the words of your gospel. That we would be people who loved the lost and desired their salvation. Lord, that you would open our eyes to opportunities that we have overlooked. Lord, that you would open our eyes to opportunities that we have grown cold towards. Lord, in those places where we see hearts that are hardened, let us not lose hope as though the gospel is not for them. For anyone who confesses in Christ, Lord, it is as close as it could be, Lord, written on our hearts. Lord, let it be in our mouths as well that we would speak life, this truth of life to the lost and dying world. Lord, as we now worship You, I pray that You would open our hearts to worship. Lord, and that as our hearts are open to worship, that we would be jealous for your name's sake, that we would be jealous that there are places in this world where they do not yet worship your name because they do not know your name. Lord, raise up a people here who never thought they would go that will go. For your name's sake. For your glory. That Christ might be exalted and lifted high.